Okay, uh, welcome everyone to another episode of One of Two Hundred. This is uh, your host Brian Kramacic. Uh, it's just me this week, uh, and we have a very exciting uh, uh, interview coming up. We have witnessed over the last, let's say, five years a, a if not probably collapse is too strong a word, but a, a wavering of the neoliberal order that seems to be buckling under its own contradictions and under uh, various crises that have, have cropped up, um, both to do with the economic system and, and externally. One of the most dramatic has been seen in Chile, um, where we saw a, a major rebellion against the neoliberal order in 2019. Uh, and now uh, there was a major election, you may have heard of it, um, where some very exciting things happened. And in fact, the left uh, actually won uh, in, a, in a nice change from what has tended to happen in a lot of countries that we have uh, been watching this battle play out. So uh, I'm very excited to say that, that we have a, a great guest to tell us all about this, this most recent election and uh, I guess the context for it and what we can expect. Uh, we have here David Dualde. He is a longtime Democratic Socialist activist uh, in the United States. He was a deputy director of uh, Democratic Socialists of America, DSA. He was the political director of Our Revolution. And he very recently uh, took part in a delegation to Chile to uh, observe the election. And he is here to tell us all about it. David, how are you going? Good. Thank you so much. It's really exciting to be here. And I'm very happy to have the opportunity to talk about what has happened in Chile in the past three weeks and in the past 30 years. And it's gonna be, I think, a very good uh, conversation. So look yeah, forward to your well, questions. We're very excited to have you. It's always great to have uh, anyone from, from overseas who has been witness to some of these events that we are observing from uh, wherever our couches may be, whether they're in New Zealand or <laughs> Australia or, or whatever country that, that we happen to be in at the time. Um, and so uh, I think a lot of Kiwis given the fact that we are struggling with our own uh, kind of uh, wheezing neoliberal order, we'll be keen to hear how the people of Chile have, uh, <laughs> have, re have responded. Yeah, so Chile is a fascinating dynamic when you want to look at neoliberalism, because I think as someone who lives in the States full time, you know, what is really incredible, sometimes if you take a step back from a political science perspective is like, people don't talk about neoliberalism in the United States outside of like very specific academic or political circles. It's not something that's in the popular discourse, I think for a variety of reasons, but that's not the case in Chile where you do see the political class talk about it in a much more open way with the voting public. And I think that's because, which I think a lot of, this will center around is that Chile really was the experiment, the petri dish for neoliberalism in the 1970s. And it's important to like put things in their historical context, which I assume, you know, people listening to this would know, but it's important to remember that, you know, Chile was a bourgeois democracy in the 1970s. Allende never stopped capitalism from existing and he never actually achieved a governing majority to boot. So, but he, they were able to do a lot of his socialist and communist alliance with social democrats, popular unity for three years, were really able to do significant reforms that, you know, really did challenge the capitalist order so much that they were overthrown 
by a military junta led by, eventually taken over really by Augusto Pinochet. Because in theory, they, they were all supposed to be four equal partners of the different elements of the military. But he he commandeered. And Pinochet actually had been, people forget, had been appointed by Yende because they're actually, I was reflecting on it yesterday in the United States where we had the first anniversary of our uh, kind of in quote unquote insurrection at the Capitol where there actually had been like a military, a small military insurrection of some of uh, some kind of mid-range officers that if, if you have anyone seen the Battle of Chile, which is a great documentary, which would really help, you know, they should see they go over that. And it's put down pretty quickly, but it's really a harbinger of how the capitalist class is going to respond to this. So people, so fast forwarding a few decades, you know, what I, Pinochet is able to do is Pinochet is really able to stop the progress of any of any progressive action, except for one thing, which I think is very important, which we'll come back later, which is like, he doesn't sell off the copper mine. So there was already a process. So Chile is a very heavily uh, mineral dependent state for, uh, you know, income. So it's usually his copper, but now it's actually looking at lithium. So these are natural resources that are incredibly important for our economy that doesn't tax a lot and taxes are, will be a huge issue we'll talk about. So, the, so, so even before the government of Allende, uh, Frey, who was a Christian Democrat, had already begun the process to take back the copper mines from the American interest. And so Pinochet doesn't actually privatize that because it's such a huge source of income and they end up using it a lot for the military. So they have, but they do... So he has his own interest. So it's just always, he's not a very consistent person in the neoliberalism, but he does institute lots of neoliberal reforms that I would preference that you, that even people in what we would call bourgeois democracies or liberal democracies don't accept, you know, because they had to force them under. So one of the most famous is the private pension system. So Chile doesn't have like most uh, you know, OOC, OCED countries, because Chile is technically a developed country, doesn't have a, a pension, national pension system like we have in the United States Social Security, where everyone pays in, um, and then everyone, everyone who is in the formal sector pays in, and then eventually gets something out when they retire. Whether it's enough is a separate conversation, but it, it is a public system. It's not invested in the private sector. Chile doesn't have that. Chile has a series of basically four mandatory 401ks, Hmm. that people are investing in that, that that does not necessarily guarantee any income, which I think is the key thing. It's not divine benefit plans. And they also made great strides in really destroying uh, the public education system. So my father um, was from, is from Chile, grew up there. Um, and so like, and he at a time when there weren't a lot of public schools, high schools in the rural areas, he like took a test could go to a private school go to a public boarding school in this capital, and then he could guarantee, count on, if he did well, to go on to a public college. Like those, that system is gone. So, I mean, there is more secondary education, granted, but there's not, but the universe system is very much, um, you know, really following the trends of the United States where it will increase privatization, increase costs. And in general, what has happened, like in any kind of capitalist economy that's embraced neoliberalism is that so, Incomes aren't, you know, even if they're growing, are not catching up with actual the cost of living. So Chile has a tremendous problem where lots of people are in debt. And the billionaire outgoing president, Sebastián Piñera, who, you know, made a fortune prop also, you know, being part of the national, privatizing the national airline, which, <laughs> which had been like, which people like, 
which has been renamed, but was was Chileno State Enterprise that became private, and also the credit cards. And so he made a fortune, really, you know, off neoliberalism, and then like to put a to put a cap on his career, decided to be president. Of course, I think he totally regrets that now <laughs> because he's basically been, you know, oh, it'd be generous to call him a caretaker president for the past two years uh, because he's real. It's effectively the government is has been really the parliament has been running it with him kind of staying in there to avoid a power vacuum. Mm. Um, so you have this neoliberalism and that people really do know because people know that Chile was an experiment. They can really see they, it's, it's just so part of their history of being, you know, a product of Pinochet, this government working with, you know, most famously where you're living, the University of Chicago, economic students and, and, and faculty to really create these kind of programs that like, referencing what I was saying earlier about the private pensions that really people haven't accepted in other countries. And I think like what I think has totally been forgotten, it's always one of my tidbits is like George W. Bush, you know, went after 9-11 at the height of his power, tried to push social security reform, which is really was a smart political move. Is like, he's like, if there's a time we can do it, like I am popular. And it just didn't go anywhere because in the end it's, there still wasn't, there still were probably enough Republican voters who were just weren't going to call the offices to be like, what are you doing to my <laughs> Social Security? So it really shows there is this fascinating dynamic where people understand that as much as these people talk about capitalists talk about freedom and they talk about choice, like a lot of these had to be done through armed, <laughs> literally armed forces pushing people to do them. And but that I, I'll stop there after I'll make one more comment, which was really fascinating in my trip where I got to really talk, see how the country's changed. And I'll get into that later on. But what I was always I was pretty pessimistic in the trip uh, until he actually won. And I think for a variety of reasons, I think also the just seeing Trump win and just I just don't just didn't trust the polls, um, which were off. And I'll go into why they're off. Uh, was that like I was like, would there be another military coup? And some people actually said. Probably not. And I was like, why? And they said, well, the military is actually pretty resentful that they basically were the only ones who were punished for Pinochet's regime. And that all the people who stole money from the ruling class, all the rich people who made the fortunes basically got off. And it was only the military and not even really the police, which was interesting, was that the police never went through the truth, truth and reconciliation process that the military had to go through and, and the punishments. And they were like, and so there's less, there's less, in, there was less like got us, you know, less desire to be part of that. And that was an pl open political decision when Chile was turning to democracy that, you know, who you had to go, someone had to be the fall person and it was not going to be the actual ruling class. And it wasn't going to be Pinochet. It was going to be like lower ranking officers and soldiers who had, you know, who were criminals and had committed torture. But like, I can imagine whether we like them as human beings or not, they had a genuine resentment uh, towards, towards the ruling class about being kind of really being played for suckers. And so that shows also some of the interesting tensions with them where I think we'll see how the ruling class will respond. I think we'll get into that, but it'll be interesting. Well, that, that was a, a very uh, great scene sitter, I guess, for uh, if we, uh, as you say, fast forward a few decades and, and we come to 2021 where there's this, uh, what, what seems to be a really momentous and kind of uh, decisive election, or at least that's what, that's what it feels like. Give us a, a brief overview of, of what this election was. Gabriel Boric, uh, on, on the one hand, who's the, the, the socialist, the democratic socialist candidate, um, and then you've got uh, Antonio Cast. Uh, am I 
It's Jose Antonio, Antonio Cast. Jose. Uh, Jose Antonio. Jose. Yeah. Right, right, right. Uh, so you got Jose Antonio Cast, uh, who is a throwback to the uh, Pinochet regime. Uh, mm-hmm. Seems like the Chilean kind of version of, of Bolsonaro or Trump. Uh, what was the dynamic there? How did it come to be these two men who were competing uh, for the presidency of Chile and, and, and what ended up happening? So, yeah, so that's a great question. And I think you do still need to back up a few decades to get a sense. So I will give the two minute, the three minute explanation that leads up to this. So Chile returns to, as I was describing, Chile returns to democracy really beginning in 1988, where there is a national plebiscite uh, where Chileans can vote to either maintain 10 years of uh, Pinochet's dictatorship or begin the process to uh, become return to like formal representative democracy. And Pinochet was very confident that he was going to win this um, because he had won a plebiscite in 1980, quote, I'm putting air quotes around one, but he had one, there was a, a plebiscite he had ostensibly held and won. Um, and I think also people get, you know, arrogant off their own power. And I don't think he read the tea leaves less also if we want to be real politic, less because of like human rights conditions, but really because he had it the economy kind of had stagnated and the Cold War was ending. And so he wasn't as relevant to the United States who and, and other kind of key factors. So he loses the plebiscite 58 to 42, which is an important number I'll come back to in a second. Um, and so Chile transitions and basically is ruled by a social democratic, Christian democratic coalition. So by this point, Allende Socialist Party also has like moderated, kind of gone through its neoliberal process. Um, Two other parties are part of it, the Radical Party, um, which my father came out of, which was had been a historically large party, but really a shrunken uh, by that point. Um, the Party for Democracy, PPD, which was had really existed just, was supposed to just exist for the return to democracy, but then kind of stayed on as this like hodgepodge of like ex- everyone who had left the party but needed somewhere to be. Uh, and the Christian Democrats, which really at one point it had a third of the voting population, um, you know, were part of this. And they really were able to run the country for about 20 years with only two terms, really, by this guy, Sebastian Piñera, who was the billionaire, who's the current current president. And but and so they really were able to temper in some ways the um, the inequality and the and the and the distribution and the maldistribution. But they didn't do it. weren't able to do a lot. Um, in terms of really reducing inequality. And so Chile's economy began to boom. And so just also give people setting, you know, Chile probably, Chile had minimal immigration for decades, decades if not centuries. And if it was, it was usually Peruvians in the North or some Argentinians, not even for economic reasons, maybe just like people living. But now Chile has a huge, almost has 1 million Venezuelans, um, had hundreds of thousands of Haitian refugees because it's a much better economy and it's a place for people coming to work. And so that also exacerbates Tension. So you have these kind of rotating government, basically between like the social democrats, Christian democrats, who are kind of just administering neoliberalism, and the right wing, who kind of wants to just keep keep exacerbating it. And people, and all those things I was talking about earlier, you still have all these social and economic problems that are getting worse and worse and worse. And really, inequality is just spreading and spreading to this breaking point that happens in 2019, where there's like a massive social uprising. And even before that, there were these chips. And so there were several really kind of actually started by students and also indigenous groups for people. There was constant fighting around 
the neoliberals of education that I mentioned. So there was this Chilean winter, which Boric and Giorgio Jackson and a lot of other people who will be in the government, especially those from the Communist Party, which has kind of had its own resurgence come out of this young leadership of people in their 30s and younger. I mean, um, it's kind of surreal to kind of, it's like, if, I always, if it's like, if, I always wonder, it's like, this is what DSA would look like if it took state power, you know, it's because the age people are so young. Um, and you have these, so these people start in 2018 and they really start, but it's like, but it's like, you know, but it is like social movement theory. It's like, if you remember, it doesn't happen in a straight line. It's like, you have these bursts and you have these indigenous people in the south of Chile were fighting against water privatized because water is essentially privatized throughout Chile. It's actually, it's another thing to mention, but the total neoliberalization, like even something I remember Michael Harrington, the founder of DSA said, well, even he thought he wrote this beautiful thing where he's like, well, water will always be socialized because everyone knows it's such a great, you know, such a thing of life. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> don't, don't count on that. So you have this, these these tensions lead up, you know, that are kind of nipping that finally breaks with like, which is always funny. It's never what you expect. It's like was just a 30, a 30 peso, which really is amounts to like a few cents, I assume, in New Zealand and the United States increase. But it was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I think it broke for several reasons. One is also just the, the commutes in Chile before the pandemic were horrible and overcrowded. So the idea that people were paying more for worse service, I think was like terrible. I think people really just didn't see any of these material benefits that they were hoping for. And there was already, you know, a burgeoning new party structure. And so what had already becoming to happen was these young people I'm talking about had graduated, had been like student union leaders, but not labor leaders, which I think is important, and had started to form new political parties. And I think what I was thinking about these comparing is like one of the problems we have in the United States is like we have this two-party system. And so even if there are certain factions that lose legitimacy, let's say like the main, the Bush Republicans lose legitimacy, the Republican Party itself doesn't lose legitimacy. It's just their voters just go somewhere else. Whereas, and you said so you have to, whereas in Chile, like the basis of the parties did leave, you know, because it's still, while it's still a kind of a first past the post system, so you rely on these coalitions, those coalitions are still pretty, eventually became fragile and collapsed. And so what was interesting to see that leads up to after this, these, the social uprising in 2019 is that both the center left and the right wing parties collapse uh, in terms of support. They don't disappear, but these parties, these two coalitions of like the, of the Pinochet party and the moderate party, right wing party that Pineda was close to and the three social Democrats and the Christian Democrats basically just like collapse. And so you see in this 2021 election, there are seven candidates running. But I was so naive at one point, I thought there were six candidates running because I watched the debate. You know, I was like, I saw six candidates and I didn't realize there was this guy, Parisi, who was living in Alabama, who ran, who was like the Andrew Yang of, of Chile, who was like, so by that, I mean, he was like kind of that like technocratic I'm not left, I'm not right, I'm moving forward. Like, right, right, but I'm right. not gonna tell you that I can't come back to Chile because I owe child support, <laughs> which is why he didn't come back. I mean, it's embarrassing. And he finishes third of the seven candidates. The guy who couldn't even be in Chile finishes third. So it shows that is just, a, I mean, I read people that. People have lost like, faith. And, people have totally lost faith. I think there's some yeah. people probably believed in him. His party did gain some seats in Congress. The, the, uh, but he didn't like, but I mean, if you're voting for someone who's not even in the country, you're really saying like, 
you're saying F you in the <laughs> system. So, so he does better than all these people from these historic parties. And I think it shows how those historic parties really have collapsed in the minds of the uh, voters. But what's happening in the background too, that comes out of this 2019 is that what really becomes the proxy for like trying to break with the Pinochet error and neoliberalism becomes the constitutional discussion. So Chile has had like a constitution, like, like in my country, that is a huge roadblock to what I would describe as, you know, in these political science terms, like majoritarian chance, like things that the majority wants, they're unable to achieve through legislative means because there are just roadblocks, such as like in the United States Supreme Court, but also these other elements that just really solidify state, you know, state and capital working together. And so Chile, one of the compromises that comes out of this is that Chile has a, holds a referendum that is overwhelmingly approved. It comes out of these, this uprising, which says 80% of the Chilean population wants to uh, start a new process to have a constitutional assembly. Uh, and really, I mean, and every candidate except for Jose Antonio Cast, the gentleman you mentioned earlier, who was like, who went on to the second round, supported this process because it was so popular, you know, and it was really only the diehard right-wing people who didn't. And so this process has been involved where there's been 155 people who were elected because the one of the questions was the voters, Chilean voters had, do you want the Congress people to, to write the constitution or do you want to elect somebody new? And everyone's like, elect somebody new. <laughs> don't, don't go with the old, don't go with the, the political elite. So they elect these people who are in the process of finalizing it. And so things that have come up are like, for example, like, which I hope we can do in the United States is like, who knows what come out, but it's like a unicameral system to get rid of this Chilean Senate. Are they going to do environmental protections to really protect the environment, but also the mineral rights of Chile? How will they recognize indigenous communities who have been historically marginalized? Um, who actually were given like uh, representation, like uh, in the in this uh, constituent assembly, there was like specific seats aligned for for them, and so you have um, those questions are really important for a very popular system. So you have in the first round, what we lo we looked at exit data um, was that uh, that I was sent to me, which I thought was really helpful, was that forty seven percent of Chileans voted, so not even the majority voted in the first round, and. What the polling was correct that Jose Antonio Cass was pulling through, and that was a really disappointment for Boric because Boric had been he got about 29% of the vote, Boric got 27%, and since it's a runoff system, they both go. But Boric had been polling in the 30s and 40s, so he really went down. And I just my gut and just what I've seen in life, I was like, oh my god, he's you know, the wind is at Cass' shoulders, you know, he is like, or has that had his back, the wisdom is at his back, and he is going to, you know to surge ahead. And if you actually just did like, I did like an envelope math when he lost. And if you looked at this guy, Parisi, uh, Parisi, you know, if you count him as the right wing, majority of voters actually went with right wing or center right candidates. So I was like, that's not good either. But I was wrong. And I think, why was I wrong? I think I was wrong for a couple of reasons. So one I think is that the turnout, which I didn't predict, and I don't think a lot of people did, jumped to 56%. So you had tons of people who like had disappeared, which is actually unusual for runoffs as far as I know. We're usually runoffs participation drops. You know, we're actually can I interrupt you for a second just to ask how does that compare in the context of, of Chile's elections normally? Uh that kind of time. So, 
That's a great question. Uh, so Chile used to have compulsory voting uh, for years. So Chile's, I feel you could say that Chile's participation was artificially high then. Mm. And they got rid of that a few years ago. Um, and it, the participation really dropped because what, what would happen was basically it was only compulsory if you were registered to vote. So lots of people were like, well, I'll just never register to vote. So it was like not actually having like a democratic effect. And so the participation had been going down, you know, and I think so not for like these referenda, but for the elections, it had been going down. And so it was not like a total shock, but it was pretty disappointing, the 47%, you know, and I think that was much lower. Usually it was in the lower 50s. Um, And so that was, so I was, so I was kind of viewing that too. Now, I don't think, I think where I was correct was that like people were very cynical. And so I'll use, I'll tell a private story, which is like, you know, so I meet with my, my dad's sister and my three, my, my three cousins are there and we're talking about, so we're doing like an informal, like, who are you voting for? And they're center-left people and they're kind of like, well, they give very like standard voter answers, which is like, one is like, my cousin says, you know, well, I can't vote for Provoste, Yanis Provoste. So that was a Christian Democrat candidate who finished uh, fourth. Oh, because she has this big scandal, which was total fake news scandal. And my father goes out like that she stole $600 million. I'm sure if she stole $600 million, she's not going to be running for president. She's going to leave the country <laughs> with that much money. Um, but I mean, it was totally, I mean, it's like the, the more absurd the lie is, the more people believe it. Yeah, and my dad yeah. goes, method- does the classic methodical thing of like, here's why this isn't true. And at the end, someone says, well, they're all crooks anyway. You know, so it's like, it's like, and like that to me was like such a, it was like such a perfect moment of what we are globally, where it's like, mm-hmm. even if you disprove the fake news, you can't, you don't move people's cynicism because people are so done with this. And so I think people kind of went in and there was voter turnout was going down because it's been a long process for the constitution. Then nothing's actually happened. There still has to be also another referendum which I'll get into approve it. The inequality is still really bad because it's still a right-wing government that's not going to do, that's a discredited right-wing government that wouldn't do anything anyway, mm-hmm. you know, but then it's the it surges. And I think it's because people were really scared about losing the constitutional process. And mm-hmm. what I've written about is that cast the right-wing candidate, had he become president, couldn't just say by decree, even though Chile's a very strong president, presidency, we'll get into that, he couldn't just say like this is over, but what he could do is he could use what we call you know the bully pulpit and been like just done a, a campaign like vote no cast out in voters' minds just use this thing and when people realize as people got to know him too they really started turning off from him and that was usually I'm used to like unfortunately I'm used to that from the left where it's like people like the left candidate then they find out like oh they actually want to change the world for the better oh I don't like that. <laughs> But I think it's that people still have a negative. There's a majority which uh, that had a negative impression of Pinochet. And what was really uh, serendipitous was that Pinochet's widow died a few days before the election. Um, and she had and she was not like she was like a Melda Marcos type person. Her name was, just, you know, it was like from the Philippines, like was like her name was Sia. She was a, a very active participant in the regime she ended up being you know they ended up fighting of course she was too powerful to do anything but she had been laundering money from like a woman's agent charity that she was ostensibly running you know it's a total not only was like a total crook and and a heart and and a right wing you know you know uh apparatchik of, 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 of a dictatorship and when they said was they said it was very interesting when we were meeting as international delegates were meeting with the board campaign they said when people think about pinochet 
our support actually increases because because there's this killer majority who doesn't want to go back to that. But like as I mentioned to your you and your listeners earlier, when Cass Cass lost about 55, 45, that's very similar to the no vote that was 58, 42. So you see that there's this 40% base that the right wing can kind of count on that's like there that are truly people who are like are not which would choose Pinochet over over other over the left or over anything else. And so it's like, so it's comforting that there's a majority, that they're not the majority, but it's like, how do you then build a society, you know, to deal with this? And I think this is where the rubber will hit the road in that Boric faces Boric. So Gabriel Boric is this young 35-year-old student, former student leader who has been kind of thrust (laughs) onto history from a very small, very new political party that's only a few years old, who's in a coalition with relatively new political parties, I think one of the, of, of, and the communist party. So you have this historic party, um, very tied to the labor movement and social struggles and these new student leaders who are not as tied to the, to the labor movement, which is interesting, which is a big difference between, I think I say like DSA in the United States, which is like, even though it's very small, it's still like, and like has very different than the, than many of the left, many of the DSA people before labor, the union movement is still central, you know, to whatever DSA does. Whereas that's changing a little bit where like uh, one of the major parties, Democratic Revolution has a president who comes with the telecommunication workers union. One of the new congressmen is a Starbucks union member uh, who helped found it. So there are people, but these are like, not like, they don't have the same connection. So you have this like, very, these like this old and the new kind of coming together and how, and who have to then work with still these the, the center left parties that I mentioned earlier where like the socialist party um, you know is still the large by just numbers is still the largest left-wing party in Congress because even if they didn't win um, and their candidate they backed Provoste, who was you know who was the Christian Democrat but she won their they had the, still were still were in alliance with the Christian Democrats mm. you know they, they still have a large they still have historic voting block so you still so you have so what Boric faces, which is very tough, is he faces the equally divided Senate and a mismatch of ostensibly progressive majority. But you have lots of people like Parisi's party and all these other kind of like little small groups in there that he has to kind of negotiate with. And so it's very unclear what he can do. And I think a lot of voters were really voting more against caste by the end than for Boric. So that's my pessimism. So my, but my optimism is that Chile is still a strong presidential system and he can do a lot uh, through decrees and through just also just leading the constitutional process. So like, as I was mentioning earlier, it's huge immigrant population, lots of undocumented immigrants. So there could be steps towards normalizing them to really bringing them more into society to really reducing lots of the anti-immigrant violence that's happening, um, which is an inevitable concept, consequence of like, you know, inequality, who, who gets picked on, <laughs> the guy who just showed up, you know, who, um, and like one of the fake news is out there about Boric was that he was offering immigrants a home, you know, if they came, right. you know, which just wasn't true, but uh, would have been nice if they could do that, but it wasn't true, but it shows, but if you want to look at like who's, who's doing that. And what was interesting was that, you know, we were talking to like, where cast, like, though he like, he didn't go full Bolsonaro Trump, like you mentioned earlier, you're like, you know, he does have like he does use far right, but he wasn't and where he wasn't able to do is he wasn't he didn't for either political reasons or emotional reasons 
ever denounced, ever like, he never went anti-COVID, uh, anti-vax, I mean, more, no one likes COVID, but anti-vax, like Bolsonaro and Trump, or at least like discrediting. And he also recognized the results right away. I think the results were too marked. So he wasn't able to do that. But where he was really, where he followed the classic playbook is, the writing playbook is like around immigrants, where he really, he had the same, like, now he was anti, so it's like, I said, notice two things. One is like, it's the like total inconsistency. So which they don't ever have to explain because they're right-wing people. So it's like, first they welcome the Venezuelans in open arms because they're like, here are these people fleeing socialism. <laughs> then they're like, get out of my country. You know, <laughs> and they never have to explain that they changed their opinion. Yeah. Um, and, he, and, he, as, and the person noticed, it's like, Trump proposes a wall that will obviously do nothing. And what Cast has is an equally silly idea. It's just the other way around. He says, we'll dig a ditch in the Chilean village and they'll just all fall in you know uh yeah because like a lot of people come from the north and there's a big desert in the north so they'll all just fall into this ditch so it's like these cockamamie kind of reactionary policy proposals that like but that sounds good emotions, you know yeah. but aren't actually don't don't because they're not real solutions they're just yeah. like but something people can catch on to you can run it on the back of an envelope or something and uh and exactly say, oh okay sure yeah let's do that yeah yeah, and so there was this delegate, uh, Barbara Sepulda, who was like, when we were meeting with, uh, as delegates were meeting with the constitutional, and she says, like, it's, it, it's a huge problem that the left has to grapple with, where she's like, look, she's like, imagine, she said, imagine you have a, lot, a line of 50 people waiting for health care. Hmm. We'll have, we'll go to them and explain, like, neoliberalism has destroyed public health, and that's why uh, access is bad, and that's why you're not getting good services. The right-wing person will be like, 25 of those people are immigrants and they should, they're standing in front of you online. You should, let's get rid of them. And he's like, she's like, what's going to appeal to people? Some people are be good humans and like, listen to us. But there's a lot of people who like, just want the demagogic solution. And so I think that's something we're going to have more, we have to as a global left to grapple with, but also like border will have to do that. You know, he does, while he has a majority who support, support him to preserve the constitution, you know, he may not have a majority for some of these public policy proposals. And so I'm, I kind of predict that I think there's going to be a lot of moderation. It'll be very interesting to see while it's hopeful and I'm excited about him winning because the alternative was worse. And I do think he's a good person and I think he has good policy. It's not the lesser of two evils like it would have been Hillary versus Trump. Right. It's, right. it's, you, we also have to temper our expectations because it's not clear what's going to happen and how the social movements will uh, be, react. Well, I, I want to ask you more about Boric because I don't know that much about him. And I think it'll be uh, interesting for people to, to know a little bit about who this guy was and how he managed to, I guess, present a kind of credible left-wing uh, uh, face, uh, you know, for, for leadership. But before I get to that, um, I'm, I'm curious, was the anti-immigrant uh, aspect of Cast's campaign, was that something that he brought to the table, that, uh, an innovation that he kind of um, maybe not came up with, but introduced? Or is that something that's been longstanding in the Chilean right that they've used to kind of um, uh, uh, take power and, and, and I guess, uh, build a constituency? No, it's, it's relatively new, as I was alluding to earlier. And I think it's hard. Like when I was a kid and I would visit Chile, I'm 37. And so when I was like 20 years ago, like, you know, I could, I mean, immigrants were like, <laughs> there were hardly any immigrants. And if they were, I mean, it was like Korean, it was a small Korean community. There was a small, you know, expat community of people who probably married Chilean. But these were, I mean, these were very small communities. Like the ways of immigration, as we understand, it really happened in the 19th century. It was just like, because mm. the economy wasn't, 
as dynamic and it just wasn't, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not exactly a nexus of anywhere, you know, so it's not like people are exactly passing through Chile to go somewhere else. So immigration just wasn't an issue. And then, so at first, you know, people started coming, you know, it was more educated people, especially the Venezuelans, but also Cubans, you know, who are professionals who are coming to fill roles. Um, and then eventually really changes as like Haitians and Venezuelans coming in mass and also Peruvians to the North. And I think that was kind of a sh culture shock, you know, for Chile, for a country that just didn't have mass immigration to suddenly have it overnight. And especially people who are so, not the Venezuelans, but especially the Haitians are so different because Chile never had slavery um, in the same way other countries had in Chile. So it never had a real black population of like any significant size or any, you know, um, or any cultural significance. Like it wasn't, so there are countries, you know, like Uruguay who have like, Still, 10% of the country is black. And so you see like black athletes, black musicians, even if the majority is, are white people. And but Chile doesn't even have that. I mean, it's not like it's not like that at all. So to have like uh this totally people from different races coming in too, it, it's a perfect opportunity for right-wing people to be like to jump on that. So I mean, he didn't invent it, but it's also was kind of a new mm. issue that really the right wing could use. And I mean, it's a classic right-wing kind of also tension for them. It's like they also you know, and this was Bush faced more than Donald Trump or George Bush, I remember, really was tam like he tampered down on some of the more reactionary stuff that Trump later embraced because he mm. he was representing the big business who wanted like undocumented workers who needed that. And so he like didn't like the people at the border. He kind of dismissed them, called them vigilantes on Trump, like welcome them in open arms. So I think Bolsonaro kind of reflects that, like, I think the global right-wing playbook, as was the term used in Chile a lot, really has, like, embraced, like, no, we're going to attack the other. We're not even going to do the lip service <laughs> about that. You know, we really want to, like, that's the way, the key to victory is, like, you know, creating divisions based on who are the citizens, who are not. And in Chile, it's also complicated that strategy is also complicated by that, like Chile, you don't have to be a citizen to vote um, in the presidential election. You could just live in the country for a certain amount of time. So eventually, actually, all these uh, Venezuelans, Haitians who are become legal residents will vote. And how they vote is actually up for grabs. It's not, yeah. you know, because you have to remember that. There's know, definitely well, uh, yeah, uh, Venezuela. Yeah, there's a lot, yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of, yeah. So a yeah. lot of, them, there's not, there's actually some right wing, trends in the Venezuela, at least voting trends in the Venezuelans who are actually working class and like, because they don't, because they, they don't identify with um, the left anymore historically. And that may change, but I, I, people shouldn't, it's like how the United States we've had to like, well, demographics aren't destiny. Like, so it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. people show up, it doesn't mean they're going to vote. Well, I'm curious. So there's the immigration angle. What other parts are, what are the other ingredients of the, the right-wing playbook in, in Chile? Because you, you've written about how one of the other things that might have sunk cast is a social conservatism. It doesn't mm -hmm. quite fit with the uh, tenor of, of, I guess, Chilean public opinion uh, nowadays anyway. Um, uh, and it seems like, as, as you mentioned before, that the, the consensus around neoliberal economics has certainly fallen apart. So what other parts of the playbook are there that he was uh, using that, that seemed to kind of give him this wind? Yeah, so I think it's, a, so you mentioned that, that the social conservatism may seem out of step with Chile, but it's still a really a rooted part in Chilean society. So I think so people may assume correctly that Chile is still a Catholic country, but it's a Catholic country with a very strong and growing evangelical movement um, that's been going on for decades who are like evangelicals across the globe, are like a well-organized social movement 
pushing right wing, uh, you know, views culturally as much as, you know, in, in supporting right wing candidates economically. So like one interesting thing people mentioned was that, like, while there are all these efforts for against neoliberals in the schools, there was also this counter movement that was actually led by the evangelicals against this, you know, so it wasn't like the traditional right wing. And so he's like, and so his, his part pack was like the Christian social, you know, pack, you know, which is like, so they're appealing to, I think the strategy that you can get, if you just get enough evangelicals, right wing Catholics, you know, who really have a lot of cultural hegemony because Chile is a very Christian country too. I mean, the Jewish population is very small. Um, it's actually right wing and small. So they're not there. They can go, they'll go along with that. And like, and there's not, and while Chile has a huge Palestinian population too, from uh, it, there are actually people who came before NEPA 1948. So there are actually this Christian community that came during the Ottoman empire. So they're also not, so it's like important to put that cultural hegemony into context, and this is all very new. So I was incredibly impressed about how welcoming, you know, the Chilean left now was towards the LGBT community. You saw a lot of the rainbow flags. You saw, I got to see, I didn't talk to her, but I got to see Amelia Schneider, who is the great granddaughter of one of the generals who was killed by Pinochet, who was the first trans congresswoman um, from in, in Chile. So there's, there's this more openness, but I think it's still at this perfect nexus where there's still a lot of people who are like, I'm not ready for this, you know? And I think that, and so there's the pendulum swings both ways. And I think that you can see them on the right. But in the end, I mean, like, that's, it's just simple too. It's like, you know, there's tremendous amount of inequality in Chile and there's a lot of rich people who stand a lot to lose. <laughs> um, and there are always, you know, working people and other people who identify with aspirationally with those folks. And I think that there is also the threat of capital strike, which I think, especially as the economy, you know, is so globalized in Chile, is that, you know, the first day after the election, you know, I, the dollar, you know, the Chilean dollar to pesos like shot up, you know, it was much easier to get pesos uh, for your dollar because they, people were taking out dollars, you know, so there's, and how, Bor and when Boric takes power, how capital will treat him, you know, is my major concern because I think that's like what limits a lot of left-wing change right now is like is how much they'll pull from the economy how much people will move their money around or if they don't want to do anything and so like and there's a constant problem in chile too where it's like the unions aren't necessarily progressive so you have these truck drivers unions that are actually were you know famous for undermining allende <laughs> with some support from the u.s government and also like are not interested in some of the reforms that for is pushing around, you know, revamping Chile's train system. Chile used to have a really good train system, especially because people didn't have cars, you know, so, and that was kind of destroyed by Pinochet as part of the neoliberals. And so this idea like, like, let's bring back trains. Trains are really happening across the world. Like people want trains that are good for the environment. And so the truck drivers are like going nuts, you know, so these are about this. And so it's like, because it's competition for them. And so these are going to be real issues he's going to have to deal with that I don't think have easy solutions. And so, on some level, I think what would be fascinating happens if they call a new constitution and then he just is the caretaker and then they'll have new elections, you know, because I think where the left, because he would not be in the situation had they had the turnout, like in the second round that they did, because what I didn't mention, which was, I should have mentioned was that like you Chile votes for the Congress, the Senate and the president in the, in November. And then if there's no majority for the president, they do the second round of runoff. 
you know, so you had these, all these people who didn't vote probably would have voted, you know, done the down ballot lift mm. and it would have been much better for the left. And so it might be, the hope is maybe if there's enough enthusiasm, you know, in a few years to keep this going, that that can, you know, create a more favorable political situation. So that's kind of my, my like hope and a prayer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right now. Well, it's interesting that uh, it, it seems like the recipe, and we've seen this in the US as well, and, and I think some other places, uh, the recipe seems to be a kind of, com- for, for the right anyway, the combination of uh, social conservatism, obviously the wealthy who want lower taxes, less regulations, all that stuff, uh, plus the combination of the anti-immigrant stuff, I guess, to get some of those people who may be uh, working class, lower class, but uh, maybe inflamed mm-hmm. by some of these cultural issues. Um, and then hope for low turnout uh, for the, the left-wing yes. party. That's certainly what happened um, in, in 2016 uh, in the United States as well, obviously. Yeah. Um, uh, with, with Boric. Uh, so he's a democratic socialist, but what does that actually mean in practice? What are his politics? What kind of things did he campaign on? And I'm also curious about what the public perception of him was and um, I guess how, how he sort of marketed himself. Um, to be able to get to the position he was in to, to win. Yeah, so I think it's, one is like he benefited from being 35 years old, which is the Chilean minimum to run for president. Because actually, you know, Giorgio Jackson, I mentioned earlier, is one of his like partners in arms, even though they're from two different parties, Boric's from the Convergencia Social, Social Convergence, and Giorgio Jackson's from uh, Revolution Democratica, Democratic Revolution. But Jackson's 34. So Jackson probably, had the, the election been a year later, he might have been the candidate. So Bordic kind of, so Bordic, uh, but they both came out of this generation of student leaders. And I think, but the age was a debt, was, was, um, did not help him. You know, I think that that's like, as one can imagine that people were hesitant about electing such a young leader. That was definitely a reason you would hear against him. And and that he's also, since he's 35, you know, he was very recently, you know, from a generation like me and you who like grew up online, basically, you know, he has like a lot of like funny things that people could make fun of. But I think that ended up becoming endearing, like his like, like that he liked Taylor Swift, that he like, <laughs> was a tool. They found him pictures with long hair. You know, now he looks more professional, but they could like tease him. And I think that kind of went both ways. It kind of like made him look less serious, but also was more endearing. And But there was a lot of fake news about him, which was interesting and not of exaggeration. So Bordick, to his credit, you know, came out that he had had some serious mental health issues that he had taken care of um, and that he had like gone, I think, to a psychiatric institute or something of that nature. But it was something he had been working on and, he's, and he has OCD that he's dealing with. Um, and that was like, but he was very open about that. But then what would happen was there would be these right-wing claims that Cass would push that like, oh, he's a drug addict. And they would like, like, whereas like, let's go back to our analogies, Trump has the birth certificate with a Barack Obama. That's what he keeps harping on. Cass was like, I want everyone to do like drug tests. You know, it's just like so ridiculous, but it's a stuff people eat up. And it's going back to what we've been talking about, which is that like, you know, it, it doesn't have to make sense. All it has to do is feed in people's emotions and feed into like this. So he had to deal with a lot of this, these slanders against him, these attacks on his person, these attacks on his values that weren't, like I mentioned earlier, would have been wonderful if the, the government could afford to give immigrants houses, but that's not what he was proposing. But it was like, but that's what people 
were thinking about him. And so he really, um, really did succeed though, because he, because he was able to kind of like really articulate hope. And I think that there was, you know, I think usually that doesn't always work or we love if it would, would work with the hope, but I think people really did not buy into the fear because they wanted to protect the constitutional process. But there was also a lot of very middle-class camp parts of it that I think I will just be honest that like, I think if, it, if he had it, if there hadn't been the constitutional process, I think could have been very detrimental. So I was talking to a political scientist there who's like, like you and I is like an Anglophone. Um, so he has a lot of experience looking at different, and he had this funny thing where he's like, instead of, so like Chile has a very, like lots of radio stations in the little communities. Like my dad's from 3000 people, but they have two radio stations, the, the left-wing radio station, the right-wing radio station, you know, because that's where people, allowed, especially because there wasn't a lot of TV before. So like people really, and even that there is TV, people need like the weather updates, the, you know, a lot of what's going on locally. You know, he's like the campaigns, they were running nothing on these like local stations, which a lot of Chilean voters listen to, but you can find them on Spotify, you know, <laughs> which is like, you know, which I think is like, is concerning for me as someone who's a, a political a- actor where I'm like, you do need to like get out of your comfort zone. And I'm worried that like people are getting this false sense of like hope puppies and Spotify can like win an election. And I think there was a lot of dependence on social media, which did work out like, you know, him getting celebrity endorsements, like you know, like the famous actor, Chilean actor from Narcos, like having this cute interaction with him, with people may say where the narcos actor Pascual puts Borg on a post on a t-shirt, then Borg does take to puts that picture on a t-shirt. Those are cute. And like, and you got, but like I, I think those kind of can like people can get a false sense of how important those are, you know. And I think right. Yeah. <laughs> Look at Hillary Clinton. Uh, exactly. You know, no, exactly. Yeah, it's like, I mean, celebrity, it's like celebrities don't win elections. I mean, they're good for like as proxies for like primary voters to see who's serious, but like no one cares about that stuff in the end. And it's like, and he, his coalition has to get much more serious about really doing outreach, you know, that is going to really touch Chileans, not just through their hearts, but also just so they even know, because there's going to be a lot of this, 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 the disinformation is going to continue and, and fake news is a problem throughout the world, but especially bad in Latin America where WhatsApp, that social media, like texting app is so important for communication and people that's a great way to just to disseminate bullshit you know i mean it's like you know and and it's very hard to counteract that so that's going to be so he really ran on a lot of like hope and like you know i'm the you know the future and but i think that there my concerns very much are that that's not a sustainable you got you got you got lucky once like <laughs> there was enough going for your way but i think it's not a sustainable model was Boric and uh, hopefully I don't butcher this too bad, but uh, Apriebo Dignidad, uh, his, his party, w- were they uh, prominent political actors before this, or did they sort of manage to come in into kind of a, a bit of a vacuum, a political vacuum to open up? So I'll clarify. So Apriebo Dignidad is in the coalition. So the coalition is made up of two major entities. There's uh, Frente Ampio, which I haven't mentioned before, but that's like the broad and literally means broad front, um, and it's and it's the co- it's a collection of like the newer parties like Bordix Party, Scoferciencia Social, the Democratic Revolution Party I mentioned earlier, and a handful of other. And then there's the Communist Party. So those two, the Communist Party and and Frente Amplio, make up a Pueblo Dignidad, which was the coalition 
that Bulwark ran on. And so to, so to get into it, but that's important context for your question. So there was, so th these coalitions all can run primaries for who their presidential candidate's gonna be. Like I mentioned earlier, the socialists supported the Christian Democrats because they still had this historic alliance that's probably gonna collapse uh, between the social democratic parties uh, with small D, small, small D, small S, small D, and the Christian Democrats, big C, big D. Um, and so the communist mayor of Recoleta, which is a major community in Santiago, uh, Daniel Padue, who's a, you know, very, if you, I recommend people listen, is a good interview on The Dig uh, by Daniel Denver, um, very prominent Chilean political actor, um, was uh, ran against uh, Boric for the, the, uh, the nomination for the coalition. Um, and it looked like Hadway had a really good chance. And it looked like Hadway was doing well. Um, and I think that what helped Boric was that I think in the end, a lot of the voters in that coalition made a calculation and they said, Chile's not going to vote for a communist. And that what the same political scientist I was mentioning earlier made a very good point to me was like, the Chilean Communist Party is like an unfortunate victim of anti-communism. Well, the Chilean Communist Party has historically been like very pro-democratic, like they were to the actually to the right in, in the popular unity coalition. They were not into armed struggle like the other factions. They were always wanted to return. They, they really believed in the democratic road to socialism in, in that way. Like they're very much were like, let's we're going to do this through parliamentary factions. And they never did anything really to merit the kind of like attack that they've had. They were like, um, and that so, but Chile just is just like it's just like anti-communist through and through, I think like many, you know, Western democracies that doesn't, so it's like they have a real ceiling. And I think people were just like, if he's the nominee, the, the, the people will, and I think that's, and I think that was objectively true. I think, I think if, if it had been Hadway versus Cast, I think Cast probably would have won because they're, because like Boric was able, Boric really, you know, pushed away from Nicaragua, from Less in Venezuela, whether you agree with him or not, I think objectively he triangulated and he said, like, that's not the socialism I'm moving towards. I'm much more of a of a democratic socialist, but he's very much democratic socialist in this like new sense of like communitarian, like good values, like equality. Because that's why I kept bringing up the union stuff. Where like mm. in the de last debate with all seven candidates, it was the Christian Democrat who I keep bringing up who is the most pro-union in rhetoric. Like I couldn't imagine, like even the de democratic candidates in the United States know to throw some red meat, even if they're, even if they like undermine the unions later, like they'll always say something like, you know, and I, we need good union jobs. Like he never said that, which like was really surprising hmm. to me. And so like, I think like that's something I think that will kind of reflect their value. So I think like he was able to, you know, really, so he's able to win the primary partly because I think people are like, this guy, the other guys can't win. Um, and it's great, but he can't, he can't win. And then, and then, so that's also like how some nice things has happened, like a series of things happened. I hope they answered your question, but I think yeah, it's yeah. important well, context to like understand why a privilege of God is both to your questions, like as this historic party, the Communist Party, which has really had a revitalization, which really had been declining probably at 3% of the vote, now is like climbing up, but really does have a ceiling of probably more than 6 to 10%, probably can't ever get that. And so the key thing is getting these other left, these new left people to get the votes from the social democratic base and, and the people who don't vote, that's that's where like the political power and the future majority can really, that can, that's really the nexus okay. there because I don't think people are gonna, it, it's just because I think they're the ones who can really build 
Then you left. Yeah. Well, uh, let me ask you a couple more questions. One, I was curious about what the uh, the the media coverage was like. Um, so, you know, I, I think in the United States and certainly in, in, in New Zealand as well, uh, you get a clear sense uh, sometimes when the media favors a particular candidate uh, or or disfavors another one. Um, and while that's not always a, a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of uh, victory or, or loss, it obviously does have a major impact. We saw that in the UK when a relentless media campaign against yeah. Jimmy Corbyn really undermined him. Um, so in, in this case, what was the coverage of, of Karst and Boric like, uh, uh, respectively? Did the media kind of accurately uh, uh, convey uh, some of the more disquieting aspects of, of Karst's record? Uh, did they kind of hit Boric for some of these more you know, fairly small potato scandals, but stuff that can, I guess, be used, you know, uh, to, to undermine someone's standing. How, how did that go? Yeah, I find that the Chilean media is pretty corporate and I think it would play out as one would expect. And so one instance, I, we remember we were watching TV there and they're doing this, like, how many eggs does the Cash family eat at breakfast? Because he's like, good Catholic, has like nine kids. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, like, you know, and they're like, they have 10 because the mommy and daddy get an extra one. And so it's like this like softball stuff where like no one's really defending Boric against like the, you know, the fake news that, that I'm talking about that's against him. But there's a lot of still like, there's still like a lot of dynamic discussion where like, because it's a multi-party democracy, you know, um, and that so people do have to be represented. Other views do have to be represented. So it's 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 difficult to, you know, say that he got totally unfair shake. He definitely didn't get as good. But I, I do think I just want to take a step back to that. I think the real problems are actually less the corporate media, and I really think it's the social media is the real. It's like the irony is like mm. the democratic commons are actually where the real fights. Are going to happen because of you know the disinformation campaign against him by the far right. And where I will say where the media did do a good job was um, there. There's this guy Sebastian Izquierdo um, who is like I don't know what the equivalent would be in New Zealand, but he would be, he'd be like the equivalent of like a proud boy in the United States. So like kind of like these boot these boot soldiers for Trump who are kind of like you know a little uncouth, like not even Trump's uncouth, but these people look make him look like a gentleman, like you know. And he, what he was doing was he was calling for because Chileans vote uh, for the president by like a paper ballot like they don't like it doesn't scan they like check who they want you know he was like just he was saying at the end of the final days he's like go challenge like Boric voters Boric voters say like oh they voted twice like challenge all the ballots hmm. and they really announced this and like they didn't and this was not like both sides like you know people were like this is totally wrong like mm -hmm. people shouldn't do this and so i still think there was like an and cast ended up having i don't think cast even said anything but it was like clearly there wasn't like is this a good strategy you know it was like people right, were like this right. is not good and so i think that there's and i think that's also probably why cast couldn't just totally discredit the results partly because also it was a right-wing government administering you know the election so it would have been awkward to be like um, the election's being stolen by the people who want me to win but um but uh but um but but i think also because like there just wasn't enough of a an illiberal and a move towards a liberal democracy like i think we like we have in the states like i think we're, the states is actually much worse off in that regard so 
So in the end, I think it's like the media is okay. I think the social media is actually where the real fights are going to be. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Interesting because, you know, I, I, I find a lot of in, in the U.S. discourse that kind of focus on uh, social media as a kind of fountain of disinformation completely misleading yes. because it's, it's actually often the, the mainstream uh, sources, corporate yeah. news and, and TV news that's actually much more misleading and much more powerful. But there you go. Um, and, and yeah, but I'm, yeah I'm not saying, I think you're 100% right. I think it's just the multi-party. It's like, yeah, nature right. leads like and that there's these these are real parties who are going to win like it's it's much easier to be like who cares about these small leftists we'll give bernie sanders like one show and like aoc gets one thing else and we'll just ignore everyone else. like these are like people who are going to have a lot more power so you have to like you know give them a lot more because yeah but i also think the u.s media and it's also i think you're right i was thinking about it earlier today where like when bernie sanders when would look like he was really going to win like one of the things they you know, one of the things the media attacked him on was like, oh, he supported literacy programs in Cuba, which like would not be like, which is like an effective talking point in the United States that wouldn't be an effective talking point in Chile. Like, even if it's anti-communist, people are going to be like, okay, well, people need to read. Like, it's not like they, they're very aware. It's like, now they're not going to be like, that's terrible. Like, you know, yeah, people yeah. reading. Things have, things play in different cultural contexts. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, well, okay, let me ask you one last question. You've told us about about some of the obstacles that, that Boric is going to have to to overcome and some of the kind of uh, the things that are going to limit his ambitions. What do you think, uh, or do we have a sense of what his policy priorities are, what he's going to be able to accomplish, um, you know, in, in the, the, the time that he has and given all these limitations that you've, you've described? Yeah, I think there's a lot. I think the environment will be a big issue where like Chile is, you know, very much a victim of climate change, lots of dry. It's, it's, it's like Chile's kind of like if you looked at the West Coast of the United States flipped, where it's like from the Death Valley to kind of parts of Canada and Alaska. So you have a lot of variance to like what the climate is like, but it's getting a lot drier, especially where people live. About a third and probably more of the country live around the capital, which is an incredibly dry area, kind of like Los Angeles uh, would be the US equivalent. Um, and so figuring that out, how to deal with the water distribution, how to deal with like the minerals that I was mentioning, like making sure that there's equitable distribution and the tax policy where like, it's not Chileans are very, even the left is very hesitant to raise taxes. And so he's proposed some kind of, and he's kind of backtracked a little bit on some taxing the rich, but Chile has really gotten by on these tariffs and like making money off the copper, the state specifically, you know, to kind of subsidize lack of a good tax regimen. And that's a real thing he has to deal with. You know, he'll have to deal with like, if you really want to build social democracy, much less socialism, people have to pay you know, yeah. into it. People have to have a collective sense. So even even the kind of super rich of Chile, the, there's kind of a, a bit of a reluctance or ambivalence about about taxing those people more. Yeah, you know, I think there's not an ambivalence about taxing them. It's the more the classic thing of like, how much can we get away with taxing them before they totally revolt? So I think there's been some backtracking. I couldn't tell you the numbers, but it was like. We're going to do this percent and it's kind of got lower how many people it's applicable to it's like the classic kind of like you know we're going to tax the rich but then you got who are the rich and it always becomes a super rich who can get out of it mm. um so i think there's like i think that's where i'm seeing i'm going to i think we have to be realistic about what's going to get moderated there and i think that the you know i mentioned immigration you can probably do some stuff to like attenuate the tensions and and, and, and provide more formalized immigration but i do think the top policy priority is really um the constitution but 
Uh, but I will have one more thing, which is really fascinating, which is another parallel, which is like Chile, Chile historically did not have a lot of corruption, at least compared to other neighboring countries. And that's changed, I think, with the increase of narco trafficking, uh, which historically had not been in Chile and other and I think inequality, you know, where, um, and so one thing there, so Chile is like a national police force. And one of the things he was pushing was like police reform, either to break it up, to make it harder for them to like, to have more internal, uh, to kind of get away with like not reporting their crimes um, and their corruption. And I think there's going to be real tension like we have in the States, like, you know, around how do you police the police, you know, and how do you, these this kind of quasi-independent, government agency that doesn't have a union, you know, it doesn't have any element of civic society and like, but has a lot of power that didn't go through, as I mentioned earlier, the same truth and reconciliation that the military did, you know, about their role. Like, how do you reform this institution? I think these are going to be big questions and I think we're, we're going to cheer for him, but like, I think it'll be really interesting to see how they do uh, in the coming time. Okay. Well, that, that is uh, fascinating. I think we're, Everyone in New Zealand and and I think uh, around the United States who are on the left, I think people are going to be watching closely what happens in Chile and and you know with fingers crossed to see if uh, it is possible to <laughs> break through the the the, the massive uh, uh, wall of opposition uh, uh, that, that neoliberalism puts up. Uh, David, thanks very much for for coming on. It, it's it's been so so interesting. I've learned a lot, uh, and I, I think our listeners will too. So uh, thank you very much. Do you want to tell people quickly? Uh, where they can find you or anything else that you want to promote that's that's coming up? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter, as they always say, at The Dualde. So my last name is D-U-H-A-L-D-E. So The uh, Dualde. Um, I also write a lot for DSA's uh, online magazine, Socialist Forum. Uh, and But there's uh, my article about my trip, which goes into a lot of what I discussed today, can be found at and also can be found on the Democratic Left blog of DSA, dsausa.org, and look for the blog. And I also wrote two articles, I think one about the time, uh, one before, while my time, a few days before in Chile, while I was there. But actually, what's probably more would be relevant for your listeners, too, I would be able to check out, like, um, I wrote an article in 2019 when I was there for the actual, coincidentally, I got to be there for the uprising <laughs> and when Bordage and a lot of people did an agreement. Um, and so I, that's also in Jacobin online where I do I look at a few days during the social uprising and I talk about, go into much more in depth about who these people are and what was mm-hmm. happening at that political moment, which I think reading those three things will give people a lot of insight into what's changed over time. Okay, well, uh, we, we will uh, slap at least uh, a couple of those into the into the episode description. So, so look oh, up thank you. That. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and, and David, thanks again uh, so much for, for being with us. Uh, uh, and uh, I guess we'll keep an eye on, on things in Chile and, and see what lessons we can draw from there, both uh, things to do and things not to do. And, and I, I think you, you've given us some of that. So thank you very much. Uh, and, and to the listeners of one of 200, of course, I am Branko Marchitich. Thank you for uh, listening once again. Uh, I'm going to give you the usual spiel about subscribing and liking and sharing and telling your friends, let's get people, uh, you know, away from just having a mainstream media diet and, and looking towards alternative media in New Zealand as they are in other parts of the world. Um, so until then, uh, spread around as much as you can, and we will catch you next week. Okay, bye-bye. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational We 
you die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism